When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Athletic. Hi there, thanks for tuning in. This is the Athletic Football Tactics podcast. It's our second episode of the new approaching 2023-24 season, which kicks off very soon. I'm Ali Maxwell, and it's great to be back. Uh, This is part two of our Premier League preview content with a a pretty simple concept, really. We're we're running through each Premier League team, and we're asking what the biggest tactical question or challenge that each side faces ahead of the new season is. I'm joined by Mark Carey, by Liam Thumb, by Ahmed Walid, and by Tom Harris, and we're halfway through. So... If you haven't listened to part one, it would be traditional and probably smart to start with that one. But if you have listened to it, then enjoy. As we start with Sheffield United, uh, Liam promoted uh, in second from the championship last season. Paul Heckingbottom leading them back into the big time. A lot of people will remember the team under Chris Wilder that came up and finished in the top half, playing a very fun, overlapping centre-back-y 3-5-2. What do they look like now? It's not entirely different to that, but it might have to be slightly. And I'm intrigued. I'll throw this back to you to get your opinion because you've definitely seen a lot more of them than I. But the thing that looks most worrying for me is the fact that they've just lost Eliman and Day to uh, Marseille. So he's gone, who was their top scorer and top assist last season, but mm. a really, really good, I mean, international level sort of winger, number nine, sort of Marcus Rashford style hybrid, this player that you can basically give him the ball and he can dribble for miles and he, he can finish. Um, and also press. He's really tenacious. Yeah. I mean, he's. he's He's unbelievable. Which is why I might have signed him, presumably. But also they've lost really good central midfielders in, in James McAtee uh, and Tommy Doyle that have had their loans um, that have finished. So it feels a little bit similar to Forrest in that regard from last season where they've had sort of key players that were really effective and a system that works really well. But when you start taking key players out of that system, you go, well, we don't just need to continue the system for the sake of doing it. And I know that this is a system that Heckingbottom has used really well. But my worry for them is that they're players that played the way that would be most useful for the Premier League, i.e. being transitional, are the players that they've lost. So Ollie McBurney will be probably their key number nine next season. He was their joint top scorer in 2019-20. He got mm. six playing in a, in a front two with, I think, Lise Musse for the most part and was largely quite good. Obviously, finally ended his scoring duck earlier on in the season and went on a, a bit of a flurry and finished quite well. But I'm just worried that the system doesn't have the same shock factor it did a few years back, that, you know, they've really sort of caught teams off, off guard. And I think Ahmed Hozic, their overlapping centre-back, is exciting, will be really, really good, and that will be a weapon. But just feel like they need more new different things. And, of course, now they need to quite quickly supplement these players in a transfer window. And you're looking at a season that is starting, you know, very, very soon, and they haven't yet made these replacements, let alone give them time to, um, you know, get integrated and become part of the squad. So it might be a mid-season assemble, make tactical changes a bit like Forrest last season, but your opinion on this would be valuable too. Well, lucky for you, I'm, I'm kind of nodding along because I certainly have some concerns um, just on an individual level, losing a player of Njai's quality. And as you say, he was their best goal scorer. He was their best creative player. He was probably their best presser out of possession at the top end of the pitch so you you are losing so much there and it will be difficult to replace that with uh, someone who does 
even two of those three things, right? So big question mark at the top end of the pitch. Um, and, and I think really in each area of, of the pitch, you could you could certainly make the case for, for upgrades being needed in terms of personnel. And, and then it's just for me, I'm really interested to see how they're going to approach defending because in the championship last season, there were games where they were excellent uh, out of possession and were able to suffocate teams and press high thanks to Njai certainly and, and Sander Berger as well, who's a bit of a monster out of possession in midfield. But their back line, I don't see being a team that suits defending transition in the Premier League very well. Egan and, and Robinson, it may be that they they sign a, an upgrade at left centre back, but you know, athleticism wise, I would really be concerned about them defending against some of the, the pacey and strong Premier League strikers. But equally, if they were to then sort of sit very deep and and try and go down that route, then going the other way. You know, I'd be worried about how they would actually go about getting the ball into the opposition box and creating chances because, with the current lineup of forwards, McBurney's a, you know, I, I think could be a good player for them as long as he has a partner that suits him. And if they're going to be heavily transition based and playing long, then I think they're going to need someone again who can impact things at the top end of the pitch in terms of running in behind, physicality and pace. So, it just questions really, a lot of questions. Yeah, I mean, it's not the most representative. We spoke about it with Burnley in the previous episode, but I watched the, I went to the Sheffield United game against Manchester City at Wembley uh, in the FA Cup semi-final. And it was very much that where they sat very deep, rightly so, because it's Manchester City. But I think your point remains, Ali, that they sat very deep, stayed compact as much as they could, which worked for 25 minutes, quite strong, quite contained. Anytime they won the ball again, it just felt like it was a mile to the other goal and it was just getting hoovered up again, starting a new wave of attack. And yes, that's Manchester City, but you could probably see that happening with, you know, the top 10 teams from last season still being the case that it just feels like it would just be wave after wave of attack. And it's not sustainable. You need to have more of a threat and maybe push a little bit higher, as you say, but then you don't have that as, you know, as much pace from your defensive players. So they may be a bit caught between a rock and a hard place at times and neither really be that effective. In the interest of not acting as if it's all doom and gloom, their set pieces were really, really excellent last season. They were, I believe, third in the entire EFL in terms of set play goals, 24 in total. And they were definitely right up there in terms of the championship specifically that corners were a really nice balance of in-swingers and out-swingers. At times they do these like flood the box in-swingers. They've got, you know, quite a tall team. You mentioned Sonneberger. He's, I think, six foot five. McBurney's tall and good in the air. John Egan scored a few good late goals from set pieces. There's one against Wrexham that kept them in the FA Cup to eventually get them to Wembley. So they've got aerial targets. They've got routines. And they also had a really good rest defence set pieces. So two or three players in the edge of the box that would routinely pick up the ball, hoover it up, and they'd quickly then play wide, getting another cross. Ollie Norwood, I think, who just, you know, collects promotions for fun by this point, mm-hmm. um, scored a few really nice goals from outside the box following in. So that is a lucrative source that it will need to be. So I guess that's a real strength they can try and build onto, in particular if they've got these issues now in terms of their sort of attacking transition and, and wider defensive problems. So, Mark, Everton haven't been a very good Premier League team for a couple of years now. And I'd love it if they started this season in better shape. They stayed up on final day with a win against Bournemouth. Before then, it was two wins in 14. So it really was skin of their teeth stuff. How will Sean Dyche approach 
kicking off this season and being a little bit more like the Everton that we would expect to see in the Premier League? Yeah, I mean, they might be a little bit more robust because Sean Dyche has had longer with the players. Uh, I don't think there's too many reasons to be optimistic about Everton for the coming season. I think it's because the same issues remain. Um, it's not a hugely tactical point, but they need a reliable source of goals. They need a reliable striker um, and they don't have one at the moment, mainly because Dominic Calvert-Lewin is a very competent striker, but he is continuously injured. He's currently suffered um, or coming back from a hamstring injury. He hasn't played, I don't think, during pre-season at all. So they need a, a profile of player to obviously be a penalty box threat, but especially the way that Dyche likes to play. Dominic Calvert-Lewin is that player, really, a good focal point, able to play off him, able to hold the ball up. And they don't have him. I think they played uh, Danjuma, um, who they've they've just signed, um, in a number nine, false number nine role in preseason. He is just not that profile of player at all. He's more of a uh, a good runner coming from from out to in, and he's not the the central um, striker sort of profile of player. Neil Mopay continues to struggle um, and has done, I think, in in preseason and. Financially, Everton don't have the the pair strings sort of loose enough to to be able to go out into the market. So they're going to have to continue the way they are. And I just don't see there really being a reliable source of goals. And last season, only Wolves scored fewer non-penalty goals than Everton last season. They scored 31 in total. Um, you could arguably say there's some signs of optimism because their non-penalty expected goals was the 14th highest. So not quite as bad. And you think that, OK, they underperformed against their, their XG a, a little bit were quite significantly last season and you know if they convert those chances at the rate you'd expect them to then they might you know have a better better return but given what I've just said yeah I don't think that will necessarily be the case so I can't see too much changing at Everton going into the new season I think they are potentially in for another relegation fight. Ahmed Manchester City come into this season off the back of the treble uh, they've lost only one of their last 28 Premier League games with four draws and 23 wins. They won the Champions League. They won the FA Cup. They've got Pep Guardiola in the dugout and they've got an unbelievable array of talent. But he's been quite explicit uh, over the years about trying to keep moving, keep evolving. So what might our champions, Manchester City, look like heading into this season? Any tweaks being forecast? I'm interested to see if uh, they'll continue with the ball to feet wingers like last season with Grealish on the left and Mahrez on the right and then towards the end of the season it was Bernardo or they'll get someone on the right instead of Mahrez who can actually mix it up someone who is good in terms of ball to feet but also can make runs in behind I think Foden can play that role but we could also see Foden in the middle now especially that Gundogan left so they'll probably need someone on the right to do that role and it's interesting to see if it will be someone like Mahrez or someone who can actually mix it up with more runs in behind. Mm, so they, they have been linked with Michael Elise, haven't they? That, if true, would point towards more of a ball-to-feet profile being prioritised. He's uh, someone who very specifically likes it given to his feet and, and has a lot to do when he, when he has it. He's not necessarily a kind of running in behind, crashing into the box, um, sort of goal threat type from out wide. So that maybe gives us a little hint. I'm certainly excited for this to be Phil Foden's season. Uh, I, I think that could be uh, a bit of fun. Uh, Man City, our champions, heading into the season looking incredibly strong, you have to say. How about Nottingham Forest under Steve Cooper? How do we think they might look to move from first season to survival to second season thrival, Mark? Yeah, it's a good question. I think, well, the Athletics' Paul Taylor has actually recently written a piece about this, of their 
they're not going to be totally possession based in a in a sort of a top six style, but they they need to have more of the ball basically. So no team averaged a lower share of possession than than Forest thirty seven point six last year. So we know that they were really strong in transition and counter attacking with Morgan Gibbs White and especially Brennan Johnson. You know the the pace that they they offer, but there were long periods where they would just go without the ball, um, and it wasn't really all that sustainable. So I think the reason that they are looking for Ibrahim Sangari, which would be a massive coup if they could get him from PSV because as much as anything he would offer that sort of composure in the centre of the park and I think they need more um, more comfort uh, within the, the middle of the pitch and I think that's something that they could certainly do with changing having more possession in the coming season I think the the second half of that which does link is the the contrast between their home and away form was unbelievable last season so that's another thing they can certainly work on looking at the numbers of this their home form last season got them 30 points now that would have put them mid-table when looking at the, the Premier League's home form across all, all sides. Away from home, they collected just eight points. They only had one win and that was against Southampton and that would have put them bottom of the league. So talk about Jekyll and Hyde. They absolutely need to kind of make that a little bit more even. I think that does then link up with the, the counter-attacking play and the possession sort of play. Which one you're going to go with a little bit more depending on, on the opposition, whether you are home and away. So I think having a bit, little bit more flexibility be it personnel or um, or in style, will we'll definitely suit Forrest in that regard. I think Sangari's signing could be particularly exciting when you consider not necessarily Taro Awini, but uh, Brennan Johnson and Morgan Gibbs-White as two number 10s that have been really, really effective playing sort of just off the striker in those half spaces that they have had to do a lot of their work in transition where both can be really good, both can attack quite individualistically, both are good dribblers, but I think both are also really good ball strikers, they're good goal scorers, they're good creators. So that if you can get central midfielders that you know, allow wing backs or full backs to push on further to basically just increase the number of attacks that you're getting to recycle the ball better, to be a bit more possession dominant, it's going to have a positive impact on your players further forward that they're going to be getting more service, more attacks. So I think they don't necessarily need to reinforce their front line ridiculously. Um, but I think having those players sort of deep down the pitch that can help them build through the thirds a bit better will be really, really valuable for those players up top. I am so happy. Uh, so far, so good. And, uh, and hope to, to keep this feeling for the, for the rest of the season. For Chelsea, Liam Tharm. And their new manager, Maurizio Pochettino. Uh, quite a lot of moving parts over the summer. I would suggest a more positive atmosphere than when we last saw them as they limped over the line to finish in the bottom half in the Premier League last season. So what does the freshness look like? What what are we wondering about heading into the season now? Well, I think ironically, most people are looking at the top end of the pitch and saying, how are they going to coordinate their attack? They've got a lot of good forwards in there, of course, and Kunku's just come out with an injury, I think, as a result of a, a pre-season game. So they've already got issues starting to mount up, which I think were, were Graham Potter's big nightmare sort of last season. I feel like Nick Jackson has got to be on the podium for sort of pre-season MVP. Oh, yeah. Like massive change in the narrative yeah, after a couple yeah, of pre-season yeah. goals. Yeah, definitely. But it's finding a starting eleven is something they need to do to establish a starter player. They've got a new manager now, Maurizio Potticino. Um, They've got a really, really good group of players. Obviously, there's arguments that there's maybe too many players to sort of, you know, actually have an effective team with um, in terms of a squad. But I think shaping up the defence in the back lines where they need to start, you know, start to be effective in the sense that they've probably got the players to play a back five. You look at some of their centre-backs that they've got. Um, on the left side alone, I know Ben Wabadi Shield is injured, but they've got him, Levi Colwell, Mark Kukurea, who, of course, people have their reservations about, but they paid a lot of money for. 
not to be sunk cost fallacy about it, but you know you need to do something with him because you spend a lot of money on him. Thiago Silva is probably still their best centre back despite his age and his excellent in the middle. I think we spoke uh, at the tail end of last season. He made some of our, our team of the seasons with with Michael that he's just still so excellent and really what you want when you consider the amount of young talent that he's got there that he can help develop and sort of nurture. Um, Trevor Shalaba I really like on the right uh, and Wesley Fofana as well, of course, who is also injured. But there's a lot of talent there that suit sort of having those centre backs that can step out, can play um, in those half spaces, can break lines, can carry. And they've, of course, got two of the best wing backs in the league in, in terms of Ben Chilwell um, and Reese James as well. Of course, their injury record doesn't help. They've not always played a ton of minutes. They've consistently got injured. So it's a really, really good plan A system. And the thing that helps with plan A is that they're not playing in Europe this season. They've got fewer games to manage. But the problem is that it's not always going to be a, a team that you can guarantee will play you 38 games in a season or a back line for, for that period of time. But the defence was good last season. Under Potter at the start in particular, they had a big unbeaten run. It fell away at the end of the season under Lampard, but it was a good back line. Kepa was largely good for most parts of last season. So I think that is really where they need to build in terms of a foundation. And if you think you can get that right, you then look at all the fours they've got. You've gone, you can surely make a coherent attack out of that in terms of the, the quality they've got there. Liverpool first up on opening weekend. That's going to be absolutely fascinating to watch. Mark's uh, breakdown of, of Liverpool heading into the season in part one I thought was particularly interesting. So that, for me, the standout fixture from, from opening weekend for sure. Let's talk about Unai Emery and Aston Villa. Uh, Tom, Emery's impact on this team was sensational. Uh, and, and what an incredible few months they had to finish the season. Optimism must be at an all-time high for Aston Villa, which, you know, perversely kind of gives me cause for concern, weirdly. Um, but how do you think they're shaping up given summer transfer business and, and, and the start of a tactical shift under Emery? What can we expect them to be like? Yeah, first of all, it's really exciting that they're back in Europe the first time in 13 years. And if you're going to have any manager in Europe, it's Unai Emery. <laughs> yeah. um, I mean, around Villarreal, because he left the club midway through a conference league campaign with Villarreal, and everyone was so disappointed because he'd already <laughs> won them their first ever trophy. A lot of people thought he'd win the second, but obviously he left. And now he's had a team in Aston Villa who are probably stronger than that Villarreal side mm. in the conference league. So I think they've got a really good chance. And West Ham last season showed that it's possible for a mid-table upper you know, Premier League team to, to challenge for that title. But yeah, tactically, it's, it's really interesting. I mean, Pau Torres is, is the signing that stands out to me because I think there's a real clash of styles with Tyrone Mings in particular. So Torres is incredibly progressive on the ball. That's what he does. He um, opens up a lot of new options when he brings the ball forward. So last season, he averaged 3.4 progressive carries per game, which was the most of any La Liga centre-back. But the distance that he carried it was also the second most in the division. So he's really good at picking up the ball, driving down the left-hand side. And was he playing in a in a back three or was that in a flat four? A flat four, but wow. sometimes Impressive when... Um, because half of it was under Emery, who's a bit more structural. Mm -hmm. The second half of the season was under Kiki Setien, who is a lot more on the ball. There'll be lots of different variations. So Pau Torres would go into wide areas and kind of progress down down the full-back area as well. So, yeah, he's, he's very flexible and Pau Torres loves that left-hand side of the pitch. Tyron Mings also loves that left-hand side of the mm. pitch. And he is one of probably the most important Aston Villa players in terms of um, management experience, winning aerial duels, which is a big thing as well, because Pau Torres doesn't really do that. When you're playing against a side, especially sides down the bottom, who like to you know, challenge you aerially, how is Pau Torres and perhaps Hesri Konza going to deal with that in, you know, in comparison to someone like Tyron Mings, who 
takes a mantle really and, and really goes and throws himself at these balls. So very interesting to see what Unai Emery does, how he fits them both in. We've not seen a lot of Diego Carlos since he arrived at Aston Villa, um, but he was very strong in the air for Sevilla. He had a 63% win rate of his aerial duels and he's right-footed. So maybe he could come in on the right side of a, of a defence, Pau Torres on the left, and that would leave Mings on the bench, which is a big call. So yeah, yeah lots going on in that, in that centre-back um, situation and it would be a big shift from Unai Emery to, to, to bring Pau Torres and Carlos into that side. I think it also, speaking of centre-backs and the defensive line, I think it also feeds into something I noticed and was quite a widely discussed topic of of Emery, of just how much he does like his defenders to, to push high and keep that high defensive line. And I reported on the Aston Villa-Manchester United game towards the end of last season, and it was just, it was dangerous, a bit like we've spoken about with Liverpool before, it was dangerous just how much they were sort of towing that line because one ball that was successful in behind and they would have easily... Um, got got through. So I don't know now whether people, because a lot of teams will know that the way, you know, the style of play that they have, whether or not they'll try to expose that a little bit earlier, maybe from, the, you know, defensive um, centre-back playing the ball over the top because they do keep a very high line and 116 offsides that they, they had last season was more than any other team. But it's, as we know, it's a tightrope with that offside line. It could very much go the other way at times. So be interesting to see how brave they are in continuing to, to do that and whether they do trust the likes of Torres to, to be able to run back towards his goal really quickly and, and keep that, that offside line as, as tight as they can. Yeah, another thing going forward, I think that towards the end of the season, when the players were more suited to how Emery wanted to play, I think that the late runs from midfield worked really well, especially Jacob Ramsey benefited from this, benefited from this a lot. So I think we'll see this more next season in terms of uh, late runs from the midfielders to score the goals. But I know that Ramsey's, Ramsey was injured, but all of the others can do that, of course. Yeah, n none of you have touched on what I consider to be the most interesting development this summer. That's uh, Ezri Konza unlocking a new skill where he carries it 85 yards through goal. the middle of the pitch. Such a pre-season goal. Yeah. Smashes it in from the edge of the box. I feel like, you know, if you can do that, five to ten times this season <laughs> really the sky's the limit for, for Villa he'd be, he'd be unlocking a whole new part of the, the sport entirely which could be a bit of fun this episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra the official beer sponsor of the NBA want to get closer to the game than ever before Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear courtside seats to an NBA game and more head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. You're listening to the Athletic Football Tactics Podcast with Ali Maxwell. What about Wolves? Liam, I'd love to see them score some goals. Yeah. Any chance? We all? Currently, no. But then again, at the sort of tail end of... Uh, the last calendar year at Christmas, of course, they recovered really well to, to survive from being bottom. I know that was different because there was a World Cup, so it wasn't quite the same thing. But there's sort of just bigger questions to be asked with that. So they, they sold their joint top scorer, Ruben Neves, who, who had six goals last season, which in and of itself is quite telling that, you know, the player who takes so many long shots is, is one of your top scorers. Um, they were comfortably the lowest scorers in the division. They scored 31, which was three fewer than, than Everton, um, which when you're looking at 
that's what almost sort of 0.75 a game. It's just really, really not sustainable. You're asking a lot of your defence, and of course, they've also sold defenders as well um, this window. So it's difficult when you look at Raul Jimenez leaving because he's, of course, following his injury, hasn't quite hit the same heights as previously. But you look at, he was the last player to score more than six goals in a Premier League season for Wolves, and that was in 2019-20, which is an awful long time ago, which I think when he had, he had the link up with Adama Traore, who just sort of dribbled down the line, crossed it, and he headed in a goal. Felt like how all oh, 17 of those goals came about. The good news, Pedro Neto is, by the looks of it, back to sort of full fitness and going to play again. The bad news is that him and Daniel Perenz, who's probably one of the other, their best attackers, are kind of very similar players on the same part of the pitch. So you either play one of them and then you're limited in your attacking threat, which you want more when you're this you know, poor and attacking team, or you have to sort of shoehorn in someone elsewhere. They're both these quite diminutive, right-footed sort of players off the left that like to cut inside and, and be dynamic. They've, of course, brought in uh, Matez Cunha, uh, who had a loan spell, I think. It was from January to end of the season. They made that permanent for quite a big fee, but he's also never been a prolific goal scorer. In the most, he scored a seven in one season, and he's largely played for sort of these transitional teams in terms of Leipzig, um, Hertha and, and Atletico. So, again, it's sort of like, where are the goals coming from? Um I don't really know currently and at least in terms of individuals there's not a lot of promise there so that is something they can resolve you know with a good tactical approach with good patterns if they can form formulate partnerships um again set pieces transitions but individually there's some holes in that team in, in the forward department out of the 17 teams from last season's premier league that that will take part in this campaign two of them have new managers one of them is tottenham we spoke about Ange postcoglu at the top of part one the other team is bournemouth Tom, Andoni Iriola, can we get to know you? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't yes. really know how to react to that. <laughs> the, the answer is yes. Okay. Um, because you're, this is one of your areas of expertise. Yes. I think I'm very excited about Andoni Iriola. The potential for transformation is huge at Bournemouth. I think particularly in terms of what we're used to at Bournemouth and this kind of style that he always plays. I mean, he, he's always punched above his weight with, with the teams that he's managed. So Mirandes were a second division side in Spain. He took them to the Copa del Rey semi-final. They beat Sevilla, they beat Villarreal on the way. That was an amazing run. And Raya Vallecano, he brought them up in, into La Liga. He led them to two kind of European pushes that faded away towards the end of the season. Um, and he's, you know, he's got the number of some of the bigger sides. So he's beaten Barcelona three out of four times. He's played them while, while they've been in La Liga. They've beaten Real Madrid. They've beaten Atletico Madrid. And yeah, um, the Estadio de Vallecas was probably one of the hardest places to go since he's he's been a manager there. So really, really interesting. And, and the main thing stylistically is that he is very intense, very aggressive. So Rayo regained possession 6.2 times in the attacking third per game last season. That's the most of any La Liga side. Their pressing intensity was also higher than any Premier League team last season. So they're going to be in your face trying to steal the ball off you in, in, in advanced areas. And that's something we've not seen a lot of at Bournemouth, but I think it'd be really interesting to see if he can get that message across. Feels like quite a high variability of potential uh, outcomes here, Mark. They, they could be absolutely sensational. I think there's also a chance that it, it could be disastrous because it is quite an extreme approach and that comes with risks, obviously. Risks and rewards. Yeah, I mean, the first example I'm thinking of is Crystal Palace when they brought in De Boer and they tried to completely change things and then that, about three games in, they just said, nope, let's go back to, to type, um, which Crystal Palace have done a couple of times since. But yeah, I, I feel like they didn't necessarily have a really strong identity last season. Obviously, the way that things ended with Scott Parker and then Gary O'Neill coming in and he did he outperformed how everyone expected him to. But they were always looking to 
bide their time until they could find someone who they, who would have a, a really strong identity. And by all accounts, it looks like Iriola is definitely that person. So at least they're kind of being consistent with with what they'd always planned. And whether it works out or not um, is another story. But credit to them for for really going for it. Yeah, I think one of the most interesting tactical things we can probably look out for is this kind of verticality. So. Iriola talks a lot about stretching the pitch, but in terms of you know verticality rather than width, mm-hmm. um, which is really interesting. So if you look at their centre backs last season at Rayo Vallecano, uh, Alejandro Catena um, completed the most long balls in a division. Florian Lejeune, who you might remember from Newcastle, was fifth. How so. could I forget? <laughs> <laughs> and he actually scored two goals um, in in a single game last season. Uh, very reminiscent of a time mm-hmm. he did that at Everton. So. Yeah, on free kick duty as well. Um, very, very strange things going on at Rayo Vallecano. But yeah, almost a thousand combined long passes from those two players um, from a centre-backs last season. So that shows that they like to go long. And it, it's not necessarily, it doesn't really matter if those are accurate balls or not. They kind of, what Iriola's idea is, is to get the back four of the opposition team backtracking a little bit. That creates a bit of space between the back four and the midfield for the more creative players to pick up the ball. And if you're looking at their standout players last season, Izzy Palathorn is a, a left-footed right winger, really diminutive, likes to cut in on his left foot. And they seem to have a similar profile in Dango Watara, um, who I think is it's, it's kind of been underrated that he's still 21 years old. His output, in, especially for Lorient in Liga last season, was very good. He's very, you know, he's very intense off the ball. Uh, got good quality on that left foot. I think he he fits this new system like a glove. So that could be really interesting. New signing Milos Kedekes as well at left back is is very intense. He's a, he's a good ball winner. I think you know Idel has been given more money than he's ever had really, um, and he's brought in some some really interesting players, and he also has some to work with who who could fit his system. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm I'm all in. I'm all in on this. I think we're going to be talking about Bournemouth quite a lot this season. I note that they've got. West Ham first up and then Liverpool away and then Spurs at home and then Brentford away and then Chelsea at home. So a very interesting first batch of fixtures for them and the way that they approach that uh, will be fascinating. West Ham opening day opponents, Mark, uh, European Conference League winning West Ham, Sean of Rice. Correct. What, what does that mean for them tactically? What What do you do you know, when Aston Villa lost Grealish mm. and Christian Perslow did his, we're going to replace him in the net. We're going to sign three players to replace what Grealish does. Yeah. Can West Ham, is that what they have to try and do with Rice or do they just try and have lightning strike twice and find another Rice? Well, well, I suppose chance would be a fine thing if they could actually sign a player. They're the only side in the Premier League to uh, not make a, a signing at all. Right. Um, so even if they do sign someone, they're sort of running out of time to to give them a, a full pre-season, to bed them in, to get used to the way of working. So yeah, I think that could be a potential way. I'm thinking of Spurs when they sold Bale and Liverpool when they sold Suarez as well to try and sort of make it up in the aggregate. I mm-hmm. don't know whether that's necessarily going to be the case, but the obvious gap is is the midfield, obviously, with Rice going. And it's Flynn Downs' season. Well, yeah, exactly, yeah. That's, that's the sort of... That's what they're sort of talking about at the moment. Flynn, yes, it's brilliant. There's been a lot of chat about James Ward-Prowse potentially coming in. I wouldn't say by any stretch that's a, a like-for-like replacement, albeit it would be a very good signing. Premier League um, 
reputation, etc. And I think that obviously with James Ward-Prowse, you'd be providing a, a really good set-piece threat. And, and West Ham scored 11 set-pieces last season, which was about league average. And even accounting for the opportunity, their set-pieces per goal, 28.6, was the 14th worst. There's plenty of room for improvement there. You could think that there could be positives of bringing James Ward-Prowse, as well as his all-round game, you know, set-piece threat could be strong. And I think as much as anything, from a tactical perspective with David Moyes, he's sometimes... He's damned if he does, he damned, he's damned if he doesn't, because when West Ham do well, whether it's in the league in a couple of seasons ago or having just won the, the Conference League, you think, OK, now we'll kick on, maybe have a bit more of a dominant style of play. We've got a few more technical players, Lucas Pakitar being a, a good example of that. And then it doesn't quite work. And then they go back to being direct, low block, and it starts being kind of fairly effective. And you think, OK, kind of let's stick with that. You get more success from an arguably less easy on the eye style of play but then which would you prefer? Would you rather a better style of play and not win as many games? I Success, think, please. Exactly, yeah. If I can choose. So so maybe that's what they should go for. I think that they are still, there's a question mark still over that in the upcoming season, but not too much change. They've still got David Moyes and they've made no signings. So there's not too much to talk about in terms of personnel. I think they massively need to stick or twist with Jean-Lucas Scamacca. He's a quality player. He's got resale value if they choose to sell him now. Obviously, there's links to him possibly returning to, to Italy. And I know Michel Antonio says as much about him not really being a, a Moyes-type striker. But I think there's a real central role in a literal and figurative sense for Lucas Pacatar this season. He ended last season in really, really good form. I mean, he, I think he played the three ball to Jared Bowen in the final for, for the winning goal. Um, he was excellent, maybe a bit more sort of box to boxy, maybe a bit more late running onto crosses. But technically, he's, he's outstanding. I think he's a better line breaker as a passer than what Declan Rice was. You could look at making that central midfield around him rather than saying, oh, OK, we need to replace Rice because you're not going to replace Declan Rice. You're going to have to find a different way of coordinating the midfield. If you can get an OK ball winner and have better sort of progressive passes in midfield, then theoretically you can keep possession a bit more. Then you have to defend less and you don't need a ball winner because you're attacking more. Um, I guess they just really need to re-engineer the midfield. That, Sounds easy to me. Well, yeah, <laughs> re relatively straightforward, of course. But I think when we were speaking about sort of teams replacing players in aggregate, I feel like the way that they've always done it before is, and it feels like it consistently fails. This is based off of no evidence, purely anecdotally. But I think that it's almost trying to get all the people that can like do those same things. Add up of saying, I think when they were speaking about Jack Grealish was this player is going to replace him as a dribbler. This person like you're not going to replace Declan Rice, and the reason why he's so good is because he's like two or three players rolled into one. So it's a luxury that it then frees you up to do other things with other players. So you just need to reconfigure it entirely because otherwise you're constantly trying to achieve a thing which you can't get unless you've got one of the best ball winners in the world. So what they do there. I'm not sure whether Suchek still stays at the base of that midfield. They might try to evolve it, but um, I completely agree that they shouldn't move from the style. The style is effective, and, and knowing people that you know have support West Ham, that that conference league win last season for them was you know absolutely reaffirmed everything. It probably, ironically, would have been a good time if Moyes wanted to walk away to say, "Look, I'm done here. I've had uh, what was it, a quarter final or a semi final in, in the Europa League. I now had a title win." So the fact that he's sticking around, I guess, shows that you know there's there's more to be done with this team. How they reconfigure it in midfield, I think, is where they need to start. Yeah, interesting constantly trying to achieve something that you can't get you said there that really hit home for me <laughs> story of my career <laughs> match of the day slips it through the legs of the keeper and what a goal incredible individual effort by Eze. crystal palace tom <laughs> Crystal Palace, Roy Hodgson and Crystal Palace, but Crystal Palace and not Wilfred Zaha for the first time in a long time. Does that 
matter loads or is it an opportunity for them to recalibrate the way that they attack despite Zaha's quality they haven't been a great attacking team for a while now I think a bit of both really I mean emotionally from a Crystal Palace perspective Wilfred Zaha has been there from the start he's been the, the kind of player who's been linked to to big money moves and has never accepted it and now he's gone that is that is a crushing blow but you have to look at someone like Eberieze last season, how good he was. If if this can free him up to do more of a kind of thing that he does really well. Again, we're talking about preseason. We saw a goal that he scored against Sevilla where he just absolutely skipped through three or four players and not make the goalkeeper. He can do that. That could be really exciting. I mean, I think there's, there's also, we were talking about Elise before, if he leaves, that could be a big blow because he created a lot of um, their chances last season. I think it was around the quarter of, of their expected assists came from um, Elise. So they're going to miss him if he leaves. They're going to miss Sahar. But yeah, Aberieze, give him the keys to that Crystal Palace attack and it could be exciting. I mean, looking at the transfer window as well, they've been, they've been linked with uh, Matteo Franza from um, Brazil. He's a very young player. He's, he's I think he's 19 years old. But looking at the kind of early statistics that we can use, he's looks to be a similar player to Eze in terms of the amount of take-ons he attempts, his, his success rate, he takes a lot of shots on goal, so very risky and, and you know you don't want to put so much pressure on such a young player to completely replace someone like Wilfred Zahar, but yeah, it's looking like they're going to have a few dribbly boys up front yes. for Crystal Palace next year. And that is what I wanted to hear. Great, that's been really fun and also highly educational. I feel ready for the new season. I feel like uh, opening weekend, I'm going to be sounding incredibly educated uh, tactically in the group chat. So thank you to Liam, to Mark, to Ahmed and to Tom as well. Uh, excellent debut there. Uh, and the only thing left to sort of clear up here is any guesses as to what the statistical metric was that decided our arbitrary running order. There was a clue in the intro. Can I have a guess? Yeah. Goals from outside the box. Incorrect. You said far, far away. I thought that was the... Because oh. you didn't say Australia or New Zealand for Michael, which I thought was strange, but not us. Mm -hmm. Incorrect. Uh, in the intro, I said, I'll tell you at the end. It's not goals in the final 15 minutes, is it? It's goals in the final 10 minutes oh, of I games. At, I looked at final 15 and it didn't parallel. Tottenham Hotspur, 13. Wow. Brighton, Brentford, Newcastle, Burnley, albeit in a different league. Arsenal, Liverpool, then Fulham, Manchester United, Luton and Sheffield United all scored nine in the last 10. Everton, eight. Forest, Man City, Chelsea and Villa scored seven in the last 10 minutes of game. Wolves only scored five. And Bournemouth, West Ham and Crystal Palace only scored four. Who does it in 10 minute intervals? 15 is the appropriate... Well, it worked, didn't it? It did. Otherwise, you'd have found it. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's my only role. Uh, thank you for that. Uh, well done, Liam. You more or less got that. Uh, what fun, guys. We can't wait for the start of the season. We have got so many plans on the Athletic Football Tactics podcast. So please hit subscribe on this podcast feed uh, and get excited for the season ahead. We certainly are. We're going to be bigger and better than ever before. Sign up to The Athletic today to read all the best football writing on the internet uh, and do join us again next week on the Athletic Football Tactics podcast. The Athletic.